Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Shiro's podcast on Colin. Um, we have some interesting things to discuss today because it's getting weird here in the nation's capital. I'm just going to tell you all that. Um, there was an interesting arrest that happened that I'm going to bring up later in the conversation that it's just too trippy to even fathom. But before we get to that, I'd like to discuss all of the recent text message revelations that we've gotten from um, the batch of documents that Mark Meadows has released to um, the investigatory committee for January 6th. So he's turned over all of these documents that they've asked for that pertain to their, you know, inquiry into what happened and included in those documents, as I'm sure you've heard all week, everybody's been talking about it, were certain texts from Jenny Thomas, Virginia Thomas, who is the wife of Clarence Thomas, um, to Mark Meadows, who at the time when she was texting him was then Donald Trump's chief of staff. And the texts are pretty uh, juicy. They're pretty, uh, they're crazy. Uh, Basically, uh, I'll read them um, basically what they say to you in a few minutes, but they're pretty incriminating. And it really lends to the notion that Clarence Thomas no longer exists as an impartial judicial overseer with regard to any cases that have to do with um, January 6th and the Capitol. And we're going to get into the legal ramifications, what that means, what the options are, um, what laws exist, what, what rules we have regarding, you know, Supreme Court justices, what we can do about it, and why um, Nancy Speaker Pelosi and the majority of Democrats are calling for Thomas to recuse himself. So basically, what are the options? Um, First, I'm going to lay out the case for why I believe that Clarence Thomas is no longer impartial when it comes to these cases, possibly more cases. So first of all, you know, let's talk about impeachment with regard to a Supreme Court justice. It's really tricky and it's really difficult and it's rarely done. This is a reason why jurists are carefully scrutinized at hearings and selected and reviewed before they're placed on the Supreme Court. It's a lifetime tenure. There is no official duty other than the one that they would impose on themselves to recuse themselves. So it's a very unlimited position and it it requires the highest caliber of ethics. Um, And that's what it's supposed to require. I mean, We've just seated Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, so God only knows. But that's what should be happening, and that's why we have such a long process, and that's why it's such a big deal when we talk about elections, because, you know, a president is going to be um, nominating a Supreme Court justice, and the people that we elect to go to Congress are going to be confirming that justice. And if we let things go like we did with Trump and with the Republicans, the result is losing two seats. Anything can happen. And that's a lifetime tenure. And the people who voted in these people to represent us don't have a lot of recourse once a Supreme Court justice is seated. So the Supreme Court justice then makes law that governs our lives. Um, As you know, we're waiting for a very important ruling to come down on Roe v. Wade that could affect all of us. And it's a very frightening aspect. So you know, this is a really big deal. Um, the judiciary is the arm of 
our government that probably has the least oversight. And so it's something that we have to watch for. Now, the problem is, um, if you look back to what's happened before, there have only been um, two times where like the issue of impeachment has come up for a sitting Supreme Court justice. It's never resulted in the removal of a justice. So in 1805, Samuel Chase was impeached in the House of Representatives, but then he was acquitted in the Senate, so he wasn't actually removed. So that's very similar to both to the times Donald Trump was, same thing. In order to be removed from office, you have to be impeached in both houses, and then there has to be a vote to remove and you have to be pulled. So it's never happened. There have been several times, though, where federal judges who aren't, the Supreme Court is the highest federal court we have in the land. It's the highest court. So underneath them are different appellate courts, different um, federal jurisdictions, and they all have rules that they have to follow. And in the case of federal judges, we've only had 15 who have been impeached and only eight have been removed from office. So, you know, oftentimes they would resign or they would leave, but it's incredibly rare that a federal judge is removed from office. Um, the other time that there was an issue with a Supreme Court justice was in the, the 70s, the 1970s, with William O. Douglas, who was appointed by FDR. There was an issue with his possible acceptance of bad money. He was involved with some seedy characters. You know, his reputation and his his ethical decisions were under under scrutiny. And, it, you know, it didn't really go any farther than Congress. He wasn't even impeached in the House like Chase was. But, you know, that brings to mind the issue with Kavanaugh, where we had we couldn't discern a lot of his debt that was paid off really quickly um, before he started his confirmation process. So he had a, a lot of major debt that he claimed were from buying season baseball tickets that suddenly the debt got paid off and we have no real accurate record of where there was no increase in his income. So that's curious. It, it just it harkens back to that, the the money and possibly taking money from CD characters and, and how you get back to that. Um, so what occurred though, after these two events with the idea of impeachment for Supreme Court justice is, there were certain, um, there was an additional law that was put into place by Congress to help give a little more clarity as to what is the law that constitutes you know, impeachment. The Constitution is always the first document we look at to see, okay, what is the law that, govern, that governs a Supreme Court justice being impeached? The problem is the, the Constitution is very, very broad on the issue. Article 3 of the Constitution governs the judiciary, so that's the Supreme Court justices, and they, it says simply that they shall hold their offices during good behaviors. So again, that leaves a lot to interpretation of what defines good behavior. And we don't have any precedent as to a court reviewing what would constitute good or bad behavior. So there's that. Also, a Supreme Court justice has to adhere to the same law that the president does under Article One, which is that they have to um, not commit high crimes and misdemeanors, which was what you know Trump was tried for in the House. So they have to follow that. that that rule that the president follows, they also have to follow the additional really, really broad rule of, you know, having good behavior, which nobody knows what that is. So Congress adopted um, a regulation that said any judge or magistrate of the U.S. shall disqualify himself when impartially, when impartiality is questioned. 
So after these two cases occurred, Congress realized it might be a good idea to put some law into place that says, okay, well, maybe a judge should be responsible for recusing themselves if they become impartial. Well, that's a pretty common theme for us as Americans. I think we all understand that that should happen. The problem is there is no actual way to enforce that. So it's a law, it's a guideline, it's a regulation, but we have nothing with regard to then moving to remove that uh, Supreme Court justice based on that regulation. So it's really difficult. The other thing you need to remember is, you know, basically the way that Congress enforces things is by majority. So depending on what party is in control of either or both houses, you may be able to enforce something and you may not. And we are so split right now that getting anything enforced that's at all controversial will be near to impossible. So the law is there or the guideline from the law is there. It's just really difficult to enforce. So getting to what happened with Jenny Thomas, um, there's also um, there was also a case and I can't remember exactly who it was involving, but it, it basically said, and this is for the federal level judges, you know, if, if your spouse is considered to be engaging in activity, then you are no longer partial. So like the actions of a spouse do relate back to you as a judge. And those are not, you know, you are kind of seen as one as a collective when engaging in things. So that's another thing to remember. So last week we found out that Jenny Thomas had texted Mark Meadows um, in December or let's see. No, no, no. We found out that in December of last year, she signed the letter to um, to sanction Cheney and Kinzinger. Um, I'm going to go back. Hold on. So <laughs> in early March, Jenny Thomas confirmed to a reporter of this year that she had, in fact, attended the Trump um stop the steel rally that preceded the January 6th insurrection. So that was a big deal because that's pretty, it's an activist move that's really kind of out there. It's kind of already kind of crossing the line. And then um, she confirmed to a reporter or she didn't confirm to a reporter, I'm sorry. She then signed the document calling for sanctions for the two, two of the people who not only voted to impeach Trump, but who, um, decided they were going to sit on the January 6th investigatory committee and be responsible for finding out what actually happened in the insurrection. So those were really strange actions. That was something that should have caused everybody to go, huh? And everybody's been kind of on a note for that. Then come the texts to Mark Meadows from um, Ginny Thomas, which essentially say, um, she texted to Mark Meadows in one text, quote, do not concede. It takes time for the army who is gathering for his back. She later texted to Meadows, make a plan, release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. So remember, Sidney Powell was referred to as the Kraken attorney that was helping Trump out. And again, none of those claims that Trump made in any court had any weight or, or won. None of them won. They failed. All of them failed. Judiciary review. She then continued to text, help this president stand firm, Mark. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. She also referred to the characterization of the election as a quote, fight of good versus evil. Um, and she, this is, this is very alarming. 
she texted to Mark Meadows that she was having a conversation about all of these things with her best friend and that she will keep trying to hold on America's worth it. She has publicly remarked before that her best friend is Clarence Thomas, her husband. So what that tells us is she's admitted to at the very least that Clarence Thomas, she's either discussed this with him and he's working with her to do these things or he at the very least is aware of what she is doing, which makes his partiality questionable. Um, so the other final thing that really calls all of this into question in combination with Jenny Thomas's behavior is the fact that Clarence Thomas made a couple of dissents in some very odd ways with regard to rulings involving um, the election. So he dissented in Ken Paxton's case as the Texas Attorney General um, when he when he brought a case to the Supreme Court trying to overturn the 2020 election in four states. So when the Texas AG did that, of course it didn't it didn't go any further because it was ridiculous, but Thomas dissented and made a point to say he would have allowed it. That's a little frightening considering the fact that we're discussing his um, partiality now in January 6th. He also dissented before um, the election. He dissented in Scoutus's ruling to um, stop the counting of mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania a day after the election pursuant to Pennsylvania law. So Pennsylvania state law had decided we're going to count mail absentee ballots up to one day following the election so that people who mailed their ballots can return them. And he dissented in that as well. He didn't agree with that. Finally, the other thing that's really causing a big stir is that he was the only judge to dissent in a very recent case where um, Trump was trying to keep his White House records from being sent to the January 6th investigatory committee. So not only was it strange, he was the only one to do it, and he didn't provide an opinion for why he was dissenting. He didn't tell us why he thought it was a wrong decision, um, which is really strange. So that together with the information I've given you and a little bit of the background sort of paints where we sit now. Like I said before, Speaker Pelosi this week made a point to say um, that she believed that uh, Clarence Thomas should recuse himself from all cases um, involving the January 6th insurrection. And I, I think she was sort of doing that because she knows there's really not a lot of option at this point to, you know, launch um, an impeachment investigation or an impeachment process. But if she can put pressure on him to recuse himself, then that takes him out of play. Because at this point, we're still in the middle of an investigation at the congressional level and most likely at the Department of Justice, even though that investigation is not being discussed as publicly. So in the event that you know, Donald Trump charges are filed or something happens. I mean, a lot of things can come into play. We could technically get into a situation where Justice Thomas becomes an actual witness for the committee as to what happened or, or what he saw or what he knew, which is absolutely unprecedented. So I am going to now call in my mother <laughs> again, but the reason I want to do this is she is a former Superior Court judge, and I want to kind of get her perspective on you know, what's involved when you recuse yourself as a judge? What are the different ethical responsibilities you have? What do you, what do you sort of look at? What do you, 
Um, think about when making the decision to recuse yourself and how does that go? Okay, so can you hear me there, Mom? I sure can. Can you hear me? I can. So Good. what do you think? I punched the right button. <laughs> Yay, you did it. Okay, so here's what I want to know from you. Okay. When you're faced with uh, the idea that you might need to consider recusing yourself, what were the kinds of things you thought about? How did you weigh that out? And what was your process? Well, as a superior court judge in Arizona, a state court um, judge, we were all, when we uh, came into the position, when I went to the bench, I was required to go through. Sorry about that. Um, right. That happens all the time. Okay, so you were required to go through a start We there. were required to go through a week-long training mm -hmm. regard to our uh, position as a Superior Court judge. And one whole day was spent, as I recall, on ethics. And um, a large part of that was, the discussion was recusal. Um, okay. When was it appropriate to recuse? Um, when the kinds of things we should be um, thinking about uh, in order to inquire of ourselves whether we should recuse on a particular case or a particular subject. And, and what were those things? Well, um, the standard is whenever there is an appearance of impropriety, it's, okay. it doesn't require an actual impropriety. It doesn't require... Uh, a proof of or the the requirement that the judge actually have um, um, the mindset of being biased or prejudiced. Okay. It requires the appearance of impropriety. And that means someone looking in doesn't know either party, doesn't know anything about the case, but looking at the judge sitting on that particular kind of case be it the parties, the subject matter. Or anybody uh, in the public, maybe? Anyone in the public who would look at this and okay. say, hmm, that appears to be improper. Or I wonder if that's improper. Maybe that's improper. I so that seems, that seems like a guideline that's, that's meant to be, like, it's better to be more generous with recusal than not. Absolutely. So I have okay. some examples. If I had a child or a mother or brother or sister who was a party to a, an, an issue that I was going to make a decision on, that would be pretty clear. Pretty simple. Anybody right. looking at it, uh, that there was the appearance of impropriety. Now, that doesn't mean that I had already made up my mind on a particular topic. It doesn't mean I would go easier on one party or the other. It just means someone looking at it could could really have concerns that there's an appearance of an impropriety here. And that's a pretty obvious one. I that's mean, an obvious one. Okay. okay let's, what's a more tricky middle ground one? Uh, we had the same last name and oh. maybe uh, I'm related and maybe I'm not, but oh. that from, from the appearance that there's an appearance of an impropriety there. So, or, so let me ask you, Sure. You know, there's a there's a really good hypothetical for this in our county. So yeah. 
um, you know, we there was a sheriff who was in office at the same time you were in office with the same last name Vanderpool. Yes. And people thought you were related all the time. And on the circuit, you know, the political circuit, it was the running joke. Um, you guys would joke around that you were cousins. You weren't related at all. But it, so in the event that those things were tied up, you would have probably just recused because you wouldn't have even wanted anybody to think you were related, right? Absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Next, another one. A good friend of mine who... Um, who is an attorney in the jurisdiction uh, where I sit, where my bench is. Mm -hmm. uh, a good friend is an attorney and a, a case comes before me that she is uh, representing one of the parties. Okay. And she's the attorney representing one of the parties. She's, and everyone knows it, it's, it's well known that she and I are very good friends. Okay. Um, at this particular situation came up and there was now all of the attorneys in the county uh, who practiced regularly in the county knew that we were very good friends. Right. There was only one time that one other attorney uh, actually asked me at the bench with her there, um, asked me to recuse myself. Okay. Okay. So that was something because it was just, everybody was, it was a small county and everybody knew everybody and nobody really had a problem with questioning your par your impartiality with regard to your friend. Is that what you're saying? No. Well, I'm saying it, the interesting thing was that he specifically asked me to recuse myself okay. uh, because the other party was represented by a very good friend of mine. Okay. And there, and he was saying, there's this appearance of impropriety. I'm not, I'm not filing a formal motion uh, to put it and on. And so the what did you do? Asking you to. And I did. Okay. Well, so let's, let's do another hypothetical that's more closely related to what we're talking about, even though we're talking about you operating at the state level and not the federal, which I believe has a higher level of scrutiny or should have a higher level of scrutiny with regard to the people you're interacting with. So well, actually, the ethics they are ethics and they're exactly yeah, right. You're right. You're exactly right. I just realized that as it was coming out of my mouth. Okay. So <laughs> let's say that you had a husband who was very active in an organization that had a suit um, coming before um, you in your court. Now he wasn't in involved with that specific group, but he was involved with an arm of the group. What would you do with regard to that? Uh, if there was the appearance of impropriety, I would recuse myself. Would you consider that there could be the appearance of impropriety with that scenario? Absolutely. Okay. So what do you think with regard to Clarence Thomas? What do you think about this? Let me just say one other thing before we get to that ultimate question. Sure. There's another situation, and, and we need to be clear on procedural rules uh, in the courts, any party for any reason, if it's a case of first impression and I have not ruled on any issues in the case, so it's just be a case just beginning, just assigned to me, just recently assigned to me, and I haven't made any rulings on anything or even seen the parties in court, maybe. Mm -hmm. In that situation, either party can file a motion for change of judge and it will automatically... Right. I understand that, but the For problem no is, I understand, so, but, but okay. that doesn't happen at the Supreme Court level. <laughs> that's true. It does. So that's okay. where we're kind of in a pickle because we've given the prominence of a Supreme Court justice. We've, we've put them so high on a pedestal 
And that means so high on an ethics pedestal that we are expecting them to make the right decision and not be called into question. And that's what's so dangerous. So right. tell me now what your opinion is, given, given all of the information that I kind of went over in a summary when we started. What do you think about all of this? Uh, I, I think he had absolutely no business uh, making those decisions. He should have recused himself uh, on any of the January 6th issues because he knew uh, it's pretty, pretty obvious that he knew. And if he didn't know, it would appear that he did. So mm -hmm. the appearance of impropriety is extremely high, whether mm -hmm. he, whether it was uh, actually improper or not, the appearance of impropriety was so high that he should have automatically recused himself. Now, let me ask you, because I know you personally, and I know that you would probably sit, you know, on an, on a scale of ethics, every, every lawyer and every judge tends to make their ethical decisions a little bit differently on a little bit of a scale. And let's say that that's a one to 10 scale where one to 10 are the extreme levels that somebody would be overcautious versus under, but they're still you know, acceptable decisions. And you're a little bit closer to that 10. I would say that you are much more better safe than sorry, kind of your motto. You would rather be more appropriate. You would rather make sure that your record was safe and there wasn't anything questionable. Let's say you were talking to a judge who was a little more lenient, wasn't as concerned about those things, probably a man, because they didn't have to be. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> But let's say that you were, you know, they were still, they weren't doing anything wrong, but they were a little more loosey-goosey with what they thought constituted, um, you know, not, no longer having impartiality. What would, what would their best argument be for why Clarence Thomas shouldn't recuse himself? I, I can't imagine. Exactly. I, I truly don't have a response. I can't either. I can't either. But I, I mean, can't. other than a partisan political argument, which is, is not based in anything legal or or practical in that sense, and it shouldn't be governing anything that he's doing in the first place. So I can't either. I can't either. That's my problem. Um, so the other thing that I think is so interesting that I actually hadn't thought of until recently is, you know, with, with, the, with the revelations that Jenny Thomas was texting Mark Meadows, um, you know, she now could very easily be issued a subpoena from the committee yeah. to, to, to testify to be a witness. We have never had the spouse of a Supreme Court justice be a witness. And what's more, that now could pull Justice Thomas is in as a witness to so many things. I mean, I, the door has just opened up yeah. to almost and, anything. And, and he, by not recusing himself, he has put himself in that position. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about the difference between a congressional investigation legally between a congressional investigation and an investigation from the Department of Justice by A.G. Merrick Garland, because those are different things. So keep in mind, we're having a discussion right now about people being subpoenaed as witnesses to go before the January 6th committee, which is an arm of the House of Representatives. Now, that's that's Congress. They don't have the full weight of the courts and enforcement that the DOJ does. So keep in mind that there are two things to look out for here. There's more than two, but two things that come to mind specifically. They are not going to have the ability to enforce any of their decisions without going to a court, which will then determine if those subpoenas are to be enforced. That's one. And the second is 
we might be able to, because we do not know what's happening at the DOJ, and we don't know specifically what kind of an investigation Merrick Garland is currently carrying out, and that's for good reason. Those things are not supposed to be discussed publicly. We might be able to infer that they are sort of paralleled, or they at least should be. And whatever Congress is investigating is information that the DOJ should at the very least have and be looking into. But the standard is different. Whether or not something can, can you know, carry the standard it needs to in a court of law is very different from a congressional situation, right? Yes. Mom? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think that... It, it's really good to look at what Congress is doing now, not with the idea that, oh, well, this is it, this is the smoking gun, but with the idea that if Congress is determining at this point that Clarice Thomas is not impartial and could possibly be a witness, then it makes perfect sense that the DOJ could also conclude that within their investigation. And this could be where we're headed. It's not all just necessarily partisan politics is my point. There is a legal background to it. It will well, take longer. Question: Can the can the January sixth committee subpoena Clarence Thomas? And in what exactly? Exactly. Oh, I'm so excited that you brought that up. That's exactly that's right. And we can't answer that at this point, ladies and gentlemen, because yeah. we don't know what the parameters are. We don't know with regard to what is it concerning. We don't know. You have to have the different, you know ins and outs of why would they be subpoenaing, subpoenaing him? Is it relevant to what they're looking at? Does it make sense? Do they have legal cause? All those things. So, but it's a very, it's very probable that he could be. The fact that Jenny Thomas is now intricately involved with conversations that are occurring about what's happening with the election specifically and leading to the riot. It, it, there's also been reporting that, you know, she's helped, she's donated to fund money to people, you know, to get on the buses and come here. So at what point was she actually funding this? And these are all things Congress is going to look at and hopefully the DOJ is looking at. At what point was she actually funding the Stop the Steal rally, which morphed quite foreseeably into the riot? At how culpable is she in contributing to the riot if she gave, let's say Jenny Thomas hypothetically gives money to people to come over on a bus, those people go to the Trump rally the whole time intending to start a riot and they end up going to the riot and she's thus facilitated that. What's the legal culpability for her on that? And how does that pertain to Clarence Thomas? And this is starting to get incredibly tricky, which is why he needs to just not be a part of any decision involving this. Yes, because when you talk about money, are you talking about marital money? Is he right. equally, um, are we talking community property? Are we talking about marital marital funds? Are we talking well, about- Well, in the federal any, system- Because in that way, she could involve him in the support of the, an insurrection. But I don't think that that question even comes into play. I think it's been assumed in the federal courts of the judicial level that you are, in fact, one because it's you and your spouse. If you and your spouse are engaged, so the courts kind of ethically see it as you are one. It's commingled money anyway. They don't even make the distinction. Right. So, But again, the Supreme Court doesn't adhere to the same rules that the federal courts do on the lower levels, which is the problem. So they've set the precedent at the lower levels, but there's no obligation to follow that at the higher, which obviously leads to the point that we need to make substantial reform to Supreme Court regulations and how things have to go. But the problem with that is, again, we don't have a large enough majority 
in either the House or the Senate to likely do that. So they still they still have the standard of appearance of impropriety. I, but I it's do not enforceable. I didn't say it was enforceable. It's it's rarely right, enforceable. Well, it is, though, because there are certain I don't know. I think there are certain actions you can take at the lower levels to kind of pressure people in their career because there's still another level for them to elevate to. There are you know, judicial, still there are judicial ethics committees at every state level, and I believe at the federal level. Yes, but just not at the Supreme Court level. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why we're in no man's land yet yeah. again. Okay, so shifting gears. Mom, I'm just going to keep this whole thing going with you. Sorry, everybody, but we're just going to we're just going to keep this a um, a Vanderpool well, uh, I have joint. New, I, I see some new people who are trying to call in. Yes, but I have something else I need to tell you. Oh, tell so me. get this. Remember when I was telling you about the arrest that was made in Washington D.C. Oh. by the by the woman who was very close. Okay, so for everyone listening. Yesterday, a woman, Jessica um, Handy, was arrested um, on the 400 block of 6th Street in Southeast. Now, the reason that was interesting to me was I had actually gone to look at a basement apartment in on that same block. And I was like, oh, gosh, is it the same one? Because, Mom, remember when we went to look at that apartment and we both had a very strong reaction to it? Negative reaction, yes. Very negative. It was so bad. And it was way overpriced, but it was just, it was so creepy. And, and you were like, you can't live here. You absolutely can't live here. You would not be safe. I mean, you were extremely, you know, no, this would not be good. Well, it turns out she wasn't in that building, but she was across the street in a house renting the basement apartment. And what she was arrested for this time was for being in possession of five human fetuses. So this you bizarre- say she was an anti-abortionist. Well, wait. Yes. So she was one of those people that tries to blockade um, the abortion clinic so that people can't gain access. And she was indicted in February of this year for obstruction and conspiracy to threaten and all of those things when she and I think 10 other defendants were trying to block an abortion clinic in the D.C. area. Since then, you know, she's been now arrested for um, having in her apartment having these five fetuses. I am hope I think in jars. I'm pretty sure they were preserved in jars. But just think about that. I mean, just the reaction I've gotten on Twitter when I when I posted it yesterday, people are really skeeved. I'm skeeved at the idea that it's happening in my neighborhood and ugh, gross. Well, so that happened. But get this, what we have since found out is the person who owns the house, we've now found out the exact address of the house, which I'm not gonna give out, but the owner of the house is David M. Morrell. My assistant has confirmed he, in fact, owns the house. And he's a partner at Jones Day Law Firm. Before that, oh, he's also a member of the Federalist Society. But before that, he was associate counsel to the White House in 2018 and 19 under Trump. And before that, he clerked for Justice Thomas. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Now we get to the point of this. And, and I said on Twitter, I really hope that he had her sign a lease because otherwise, whoa, can you imagine? They're going to try to define like whose space was whose what's and whose. Can you even imagine? So she was in the basement apartment. I'm presuming renting it separately from him, but he owns the house and he has that connection to Thomas. How bizarre is that? Given Thomas's wife's views on abortion. 
I mean, go ahead. Now's the time to gasp. Isn't it strange? <laughs> it's well, just, it keeps getting weirder. This is the story that just keeps getting stranger and stranger and stranger. I'm, I'm not saying anybody's connected at this point. I think everything at this point is coincidental, but it's pretty bizarre. All of it is incredibly bizarre and strange. So what do you think about that? Me? Yeah. Well, I think we we really skipped topics like, you know, yesterday. Well, no, I was just trying to fill you in on the salacious but, stuff that happened yesterday and how it right. like in a crazy way links to the conversation we're having now. And it's a reach. I get it. It's, it's not, so, you know, it's whatever, but it's kind of fun. It's Friday. I thought we'd just mention it. Well, so all it really confirms is that Clarence Thomas has a crazy wife. And um, <laughs> yeah, you that's know. your opinion. Again, and, that is my mother's yes, opinion. I, and and there are people out there who are just as crazy. I uh, like to refer to women as crazy. I I do when it, as, I as think it's person. degrading, but I think women are written off as just crazy way too often. So I don't like to use that word. I it's see, dismissive. I I don't mean to be dismissive. I I think she's really an extremist. The word. I think she's an extremist. And I I think that some of her views are very frightening. And the fact that she is attached to somebody who's supposed to be impartial is even more frightening. And the fact that he has yet to recuse himself and has made those decisions so far and has not recused himself is even worse. That's that's back to the topic. And and here we are full circle. Yes. Well, I mean, I have so many questions also about just keeping fetuses in a jar if you're somebody who is pro-life. Was she concerned about those fetuses being disposed of because she revered them so much? How does she have the fetuses? How does one acquire a fetus? Is there an underground dark market for fetuses? I really hope not. How does this happen? And this isn't, she didn't just have one, she had five. How does that happen in Capitol Hill? So that's what we're dealing with. <laughs> no. As if anybody couldn't get more skeeved out these days. The skeeve meter is at a 20 plus. Yeah. Yay. Everybody well, enjoy your weekend. <laughs> maybe the other callers who are waiting in queue have some questions about the Clarence Thomas. Okay. You didn't like the fetus conversation. Let's take a call from Pedro here. Let's see. Pedro, are you with us? I've invited you to talk. Go ahead and unmute your mic and ask a question or anything you want to talk about, if you want to. You don't have to. There we go. Okay. He doesn't want to say anything. Here we have Liz. Liz, go ahead and unmute your your mic and ask a question if you have one. Hello. Hi, Diana. Hi, Liz. How are you? Hi, everyone. So Hello. I have two things. Okay. Um, first, my skeeve meter is off the charts. Right. Um, and apparently her name, the alias that she used in her other crime is Jezebel. But her name <laughs> is Lauren Handy. I saw that on the indictment. Thank you for clarifying that. Oh, my gosh. I thought I had just was reading too quickly and I was looking at another defendant's name. Thank you for it clarifying is, that. No worries. It is yeah, so crazy. And the connections. Fetuses. So I have five fetuses and my alias is Jezebel. Basically. Yeah, that's just so strange. Um, so, strange. so I can't wait to follow. And I have alerts right. all over my Twitter for this. Um, <laughs> my other question is, and it might be a little long maybe not but 
Um, so I'm trying to wrap my brain around how <clears throat> it's not being talked about and bear with me, um, that Clarence Thomas, you could draw a line to potential judicial intervening because mm-hmm. the, um, the, the cases that you cited at the beginning that he's been involved in and how he has, um, opined how, what his opinions and votes have been, um, at the time that he, those cases were happening because they were election related and now, um, January 6th related. At the time that those cases were happening, the communications had already happened between right. Jim right. Thomas he and was already and aware Mark of, Meadows. He was aware of, exactly. And so some of the actual subpoenas, the reason that we know about her texts is because of the actual Mark Meadows communication subpoenas. Exactly. And so how can there not be a line drawn to actual judicial intervention? There is. When I mean, here's, here's the answer. Here's the answer to that. We can draw a line all day long. We can say it is what it is. But unless we have law or a regulation in place that, that supersedes it all, that says, well, this is the result of that happening and this is what you do, there's not a lot we can do about it, which is sort of why we're at this position we are. We're relying on Clarence Thomas to make the right decision ethically he's not going and to, to step down based no. on pressure. No, he's not going to. I see Pedro's well again. Oh, can you hi. hear me? Hi, Pedro. Welcome. Oh, hi. Uh, so I have a, a couple of questions. Uh, okay. One is regarding the impeachment. Uh, what do you think Congress should do? Uh, another one is uh, what do you think the Attorney General Garland should do regarding the prosecution of the... Those are great the, questions. I think that there's not uh, a lot... I, oh, sorry. Yeah, Go sorry. Uh, I have another one, and then maybe I can tell what I think about these issues, and maybe you can jump in. Is that okay? Okay, hang on. Let's take these piece by piece so okay, that everybody okay. can follow along. So let me tackle those first two things you brought up first. So I think that... What Congress can do is what they have done, which is put public pressure on Thomas to recuse himself from this point on. Now that the public knows what's happening, the public knows about those texts and the public can apply pressure because they don't have the majority they need in the House to carry out an impeachment trial. So it's not going to really happen. It's not going to be an option. I think that I personally believe that Merrick Garland, because all of this information, the DOJ has the same information. I believe he's carrying out an investigation as well. And this week he made a point to publicly state that they have expanded their investigation. They haven't said, you know, what it's going to cover, but they want the public to know that they are definitely looking at these things and, and it's ongoing. They have a duty. The attorney general has a duty not to discuss any of this publicly. So a lot of people are upset that they don't know exactly what Garland is doing or has done. But I would argue that that's actually appropriate. That's the way it should be. We've kind of forgotten that um, under Trump because his people didn't do what was appropriate. And, you know, so far, so good. It's okay. We're just going to have to wait and see what his investigation yields and if he's able to bring charges based on the evidence he finds. What's your next question? Uh, 
the next question was uh, is regarding the Fed Federalist Society. If you could okay. uh, explain sure. a little bit, because you mentioned that uh, that story in DC. I actually I actually live in DC. Uh, that was a weird story. So maybe you can oh, explain. Oh, the Federalist Society. So yeah. the Federalist Society is a private organization. It's a conservative organization that's been around for decades that has helped to raise money and basically filter in conservative justices into the Supreme Court. So when you go to law school, there's usually a Federalist Society group that you join if you're a conservative person and you start to, you know, um, network and you get to meet. It's, it helps to get you clerkships and judgeships and all of those things if you're like minded. The Federalist Society has been very active for many decades in trying to get certain uh, conservative judges appointed to the federal bench at all different levels to help strike down Roe v. Wade, for instance. That's something that they that they're against. They are ardently pro-life. They don't believe in the right to abortion. So they've been working to seat judges that will make law that represents a much more conservative viewpoint. So, you know, Thomas is a Federalist Society member. Most conservative judges are. Most people who are prominent are. Um, Kavanaugh was. And so, you know, it's sort of a filter in system of it's a club that you join. To, to get more prominence and to help make your career. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. They, they seem very anti-abortion. Yes, they are. They are. Yes. That's their whole mission is to get judges who are also anti-abortion who will help make law that stops a woman from being able to get an abortion. And they they're succeeding brilliantly right now. So, okay. Yes. And then what, what was your last statement? Uh, yeah, that was that. That was all the questions I had. Oh, that was uh, it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for calling in. Did you? You're welcome. Okay. Thanks. Bye. 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 Anybody else have anything they want to talk about? I think I still have Liz on the phone. I still have my mom there. Anybody? Hello. Hello. Thanks, Pedro. What you? The questions that you asked were really interesting. I thought they were really good too. Yeah. yeah, thank you, thank you. I, I can't tell you what I think about what should happen. Tell me, tell me what you yeah. think. Uh, what I think is Congress should absolutely try to impeach him, uh, the, the, the justice, uh, Supreme Court justice, mm -hmm. because it, it's, it's good for the, like, for the public discourse that these things are happen. I mean, mm -hmm. right. Uh, the same with uh, the Eternal General Garland. He absolutely should prosecute uh, Trump and everybody. Uh, what, what Trump attempted is called in Latin America, uh, and I'm actually from Portugal, so okay. not from Latin America. But uh, <laughs> uh, in Latin America, they, they call this autocoup. It's when okay. the person in power tries to stay in power. Right. That's, that's what Trump did, basically. Right. Uh, well, of course, he, he didn't have any chance of, for succeeding because uh, when these coups, real coups happen, they have the, the, the support of the power structure like the military, the police, etc. Okay. It's, it was kind of a clown coup. So. Clown coup. Well, clown I wish coup. I, I mean, I'd like to just dismiss what happened with Trump as a clown coup, but it got frighteningly close to being you know, a, a real issue. And, um, and it was, it, it got a lot farther than I ever would have guessed it could in this country. And which is why I agree with you, why we need to start making laws and start making rules so that these things can't happen. 
I don't think that it's likely that we'll impeach. And I'm somebody who believes that, you know, with Trump, we should have impeached on principle, just like you were saying. But with the Supreme Court justice, we simply don't have the same law and we don't have the same standard. And it's going to be really difficult. And public support is critical for what Congress does. And at this stage of the game with the pandemic and everything else, if they try to take another three months to hold a huge impeachment hearing, that could really, you know, that could push Biden's numbers down. That could do a lot of things to the party, which aren't good. Right. We have an election coming up. It could influence the election. It could be bad. Now, that being said, if Thomas then, you know, still rules on another case so blatantly that he should be recusing himself from and the way he's ruling is is so detrimental. I don't know. I mean, we have to revisit it then. But at this point, we're sort of in a holding pattern to see what public pressure is going to do with regard to, you know, is that going to work on on applying public pressure to get him to recuse himself? I don't think it will, given given the way he's behaved and who he is and what he's done in his life. I think that he and his wife act as if they're above reproach in all things. And, and they seem to have been for most of their lives. So that's unfortunate. But I can tell you that as a lawyer, I firmly believe that he should recuse himself at the very least. I personally believe if he was doing the accurate thing professionally, he should step down. He should no longer be on the Supreme Court. He's no longer capable of being impartial in general if his wife is doing those things so politically. But whether or not that'll happen, that's a whole different thing. It likely won't happen. But thanks again to everybody today. Um, We're wrapping up. So thanks again to everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you. Home. Thanks for listening and join me again next week. We're going to start changing the schedule a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to come on earlier next week, likely on Monday. And then I think we're going to move to Wednesdays because Friday seems to be a difficult day for some people. But um, keep that in mind. Keep a watch out for that. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Girls Really Rule. I'm going to be keeping an eye on that really strange, you know, five fetus case because I just can't ask so many questions. And then you can also follow me at, at shiro.substack.com. That's where I write the Shiro newsletter. Please head on over and get a paid subscription if you're so inclined. That supports all of my work, and I really appreciate you. Take care. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye-bye.